Hello and welcome to The Gateway Presents on CGSR-FM 88.5 Edmonton. I'm Victoria Chu, online editor of The Gateway, the University of Alberta's official campus media source run by students for students. Every two weeks, we cover news, opinion, and arts and culture related topics that are pertinent to students and to campus. Thanks for tuning in. We're starting off with our news segment. Enjoy. Hello and welcome to The Gateway Presents. My name is Nathan Fung and I'm the news editor of The Gateway, a student magazine and online newspaper at the University of Alberta. For today's story, we're going to move away from the ongoings at the University of Alberta and look at some interesting things happening at other university, specifically the University of Ottawa, where in August, the president of their students' union, the Student Federation of the University of Ottawa, or the SFUO, was accused of embezzling $20,000 for personal uses. Now, this is a complicated story, and... A lot has happened since those initial fraud allegations were made. So to get a better understanding of what happened, I spoke to Anshul Sharma, the editor-in-chief of the English paper at the University of Ottawa, The Fulcrum. So here's Anshul and how that all started. So essentially, the Student Federation of the University of Ottawa, or the SBO, um, is, you know, the University of Ottawa since 1943. And just in the past few years, uh, there's been some... There's, there's been some tension between students and executives just because uh, we've had some issues with, like, financial mismanagement in the past. And it kind of all culminated to a police report submitted by the former uh, President Hadi West, um, sorry, the former SBO President Hadi West, uh, and it essentially alleged that uh, the incoming executives, um, two of the incoming executives, and the executive coordinator were involved in uh, some cases of fraud and uh, and identity theft. So, essentially, um, we got a, a hold of the police report in August, and so that's kind of when the news broke. And since then, um, the university has taken measures to, uh, to sort of combat uh, those allegations and, and to sort of, uh, I guess, be more transparent with students as well as the student federation. Mm-hmm. Um, so these fraud allegations, I believe it was like the the current pre- or the former president, now former president, um, Risky Rashik, um, was essentially accused of like embezzling around twenty thousand dollars. Yeah, yeah, upwards of twenty thousand um, dollars. So in Wes's police report, what he alleged was that. Uh, Rashik was using um, a fake club through the university called Testing Restaurants Iwatawa to um, to sort of funnel like SFEO money into like a bank account associated with the Student Federation, um, and checks of up to twenty thousand dollars were were deposited in that account, and there was debit card in Rashik's name associated with the account, according to Wes's police report, um, and. That's kind of where there was there were red flags, according to West, where uh, got sort of called by the bank. Oh, you know, we've seen these charges uh, for things like you know, nine hundred dollar pair of glasses. This doesn't seem like something the SFO would have approved. Um, and that's essentially where the fraud allegations uh, came from. Yeah, a nine hundred dollar pair of glasses. Yeah, yeah. 
Okay. Um, so there was an initial fraud allegations in August by um, uh, Hadi West. And yeah. what happened afterwards? Um, so La Raton, which is the French newspaper on campus, actually broke the news. And uh, we followed suit with the, with the entire police report. And that sort of, uh, I think students were really uh, disappointed, but not, not exactly surprised at the news. Um, they were all entirely allegations. And uh, in the next, in the next couple months, the FFEO really uh, kind of tried to be more transparent with, with their um, financial policies, and they actually, the university stepped in and requested that they conduct a forensic audit. So the fraud allegations, of course, came out in August, but um, as you sort of suggested, um, this isn't the first sort of scandal that um, the SFEO has gone into. Could you sort of speak a little bit about that? Um, yeah, so there's just, um, in, the, in the past few years, there's been a lot of uh, mistrust with, with students because of um, SPO spending. Um, in the last couple years, uh, clubs didn't get any money, like SPO clubs didn't get any, there was no money in the budget to fund those clubs. Um, but on the other hand, the SPO was also spending money on things like fireworks that were never used at events, and it was uh, in the thousands of dollars, and this is what was upsetting students because they didn't see a use for the way money was being uh, managed. Mm. Um, so it's just it's things like that. There was also, um, in, in the last year, uh, you know, some SFU executives were accused of stealing bus passes, um, and because they're part-time students, they're not actually supposed to have bus passes, but they also run the, the UPASS system is what it's called. So uh, there were allegations that they were they were using those uh, passes themselves. Um, so it's just like little things that kind of culminated into this, this one big thing that kind of, uh, you know, shocked students and disappointed them um, and really broke their trust in the union. So just to recap, we have a student's union that's had a history of mistrust with the students they represent. And suddenly here are these allegations that the president was embezzling funds for personal spending like a $900 pair of glasses. Now, those allegations happened in August, but the next big thing happened late September. Uh, in September, the University of Ottawa announced that they were going to terminate their contract with the SFUO come December 24th. So essentially, the University of Ottawa releases this statement saying that they're terminating their contract with the SFUO, essentially saying that the university as a whole has lost its confidence in their ability to represent students. Here's Matt Gergic, the Falcom's Features Editor on that. One of the big things about that is, um, like we said, no. we reached out to the Canadian Federation of Students and uh, we asked if this had ever happened before and they couldn't really come up with an example of a similar situation where a university had decided to terminate their agreement with the undergraduate uh, organization representing students. So um, we think it's pretty big in that way that this hasn't really happened before. So no one's really sure how it's going to pan out exactly. So as you heard Matt said, this is something that's not really happened before. Uh, Matt also said this is significant for all the services that the SFUO runs. I think one of the big things is that um, the SFUO does provide like quite a few services and businesses for students. So, uh, for example, um, they have 12 service centers on campus. So one of the really big ones is a food bank that a lot of students actually do rely on for um, just their basic everyday meals that they need to eat, obviously, right? So that's mm-hmm. a big thing. And then they also have things like a pride center, uh, a foot patrol, um, 
also a center for students with disabilities, um, a racialized and indigenous student experience center. So uh, there's like a whole spectrum of different services they have that um, are kind of being threatened now and we're not really sure if they're going to continue to exist after the termination. Um, the university's not really, they, the university has said in their statements that they're going to do um, the best they can for students and they're going to keep providing for students, but they haven't really been clear exactly on how this is going to look. As far as the services go, another big thing is um, health insurance, and that's health and dental insurance is covered mm -hmm. through the student union as well. Uh, and then you're, and the University of Ottawa uh, let students know that they will be taking this over up until August of 2019. Um, and whether or not we have any student union in place by then, we're not sure whether they'll be taking that over um, as well. And according to Anshul, some were happy about it and some were a little less so about it. For the most part, uh, from student perspective, it was positive. Most students were um, pretty fed up with, with the allegations. Um, and when the university decided they were going to terminate the contract, they, they kind of uh, appreciated that, uh, that step. Others, on the other hand, were a little bit skeptical. They weren't sure that university administration intervention was the best way to go. And they felt that it kind of threatened you know, an autonomous student union. But the university made it very clear that you know, they're welcoming a new student body to uh, to form a government, and they'll be working to uh, ensure that there is a new contract in place. And that leads to the other big thing about that announcement from the university, is that they essentially opened a door for a new organization to come in and become the official representative of students at the University of Ottawa. After that was announced, um, a group of students from uh, various uh, political um, parties, uh, like for example, the University of Ottawa NDP, um, they came together and sort of created a proposal for a new union called University of Ottawa Student Union, or UOSU, and they've been having um, meetings with the university administration as well uh, for the potential of a new contract okay. um, in 2019. Okay. How many groups are trying to become the, are, are doing this? Currently, that's the only one that we're aware of um, on campus, and they've had the the largest amount of support from students as well. Um, the university announced mm -hmm. that there is going to be um, a referendum in early 2019 so that students can vote on their official student union. So you have this new group, the University of Ottawa Students Union, or the UOSU, that's prepping itself to become the next official association representing students at the University of Ottawa. And all of this will be decided in a referendum sometime next year. Here's Paige Booth on that. She's the acting president of the SFUO. Everything's kind of up in the air. Uh, I'm not also sure what this referendum is going to look like. I feel like it will cause a very divisive campus um, and that we're going to have two groups of students against each other. Uh, the university also said that they will accept anyone who comes forward as a student union group. This in particular worries me because uh, the University of Ottawa will also be adopting their free speech policy that was mandated by Doug Ford uh, by January, which is, in my opinion, an anti-protest policy. Even the Canadian Charter of Rights has limitations to freedom of expression. So, for example, if like a white supremacy group wants to come forward, I don't know if they would like block that or how that would look, but um, I'm hoping that the, the SFUO will be able to rise like a phoenix and, and prove the big changes that we've made since these allegations. and. Um, protect these services for the students and be able to continue on as the sole uh, union representing undergraduate students. 
in the meantime, the SFUO is preparing itself for that referendum too. Uh, many of the executives who were named in those initial allegations in August have resigned, um, including Risky Rashik, who is now the former president of the organization. Uh, remember, he's the guy who was essentially accused of embezzling $20,000 for personal uses. And since he's resigned, Page is now the acting president of the organization. And this sort of leads into the most recent thing that happened, uh, which is the release of an audit of the SFUO conducted following those fraud allegations and was released on November 5th. The university stepped in and requested that they conduct a forensic audit. So the SFUO actually just uh, released the audit report by PwC. Um, And that actually cleared the executives that were mentioned in the police report of the fraud allegations. So... There, wait, so it's cleared the executives of any like allegations of fraud? Yes. So um, a redacted version of the report was released Wednesday uh, of this week, and uh, sorry, Wednesday of this week, and it did essentially clear the um, the executives of uh, the allegations of fraud. Uh, but it was stated within the report that it didn't constitute a um, an audit the Canadian uh, auditing standards. So as you may have heard, there is some dispute over the validity of the audit that was released, but Paige, um, the acting president, stands by the results of the audit. So I just wanted to dispel a big rumor that came out since uh, we released the full redacted version of the audit. So in the audit, there's a clause under Appendix A that says, this does not constitute an audit per Canadian auditing standards. And the reason that is, is because this is not uh, your typical financial audit for an organization. Uh, We do a yearly financial audit with a company called Deloitte, um, and they actually put their annual audit on pause to allow for a forensic audit to happen. And it does not constitute like your typical Canadian audit is because it's a forensic audit (coughs) specifically into specific allegations. So this clause has led a lot of people to say like hashtag fake audit, this is not a real audit, but it is a real audit, it's just a forensic audit and not a financial audit. Okay, so it's not, um, just to break it down a little bit, so it's not that it's a fake audit, as you say, but it's just that it's a, it's not like, how would you say it, um, uh, an audit done by your normal, like, financial, like, regulator? Yeah, we do yearly financial audits that go into things like exec spending, like, organization, um, yearly spending, our budget, everything of that sort. But this uh, forensic audit was passed by the Board of Administration to look deeper into specific allegations of fraud that were made. So Deloitte had done an annual audit for that year of 2015, and they actually didn't flag anything. So this is why we did a forensic audit to go deeper into these allegations that were made. And according to Angela and Matt uh, from the Fulcrum, uh, the SFUO has made some significant organizational reforms. But the big question is the referendum that's set to happen next year and who will become the new students' union that will engage with the University of Ottawa um, in terms of representing the interests of students there. So they are making a number of really important changes. Um, I would just say like it really comes down to um, if this is going to win over students or not. And that's like really hard to say at this point. And it's really going to depend on how this pans out over the next few weeks and few months. And... Um, it's really all up in the air how students are going to take these changes and if that's going to be enough to win them back. Yeah. And that being said, uh, some students have also been questioning um, the PwC report. So uh, I think going forward, um, whether or not those remaining 
questions are answered will also make a big difference as to how students decide to vote in referendums come February 2019. That was the Gateway Presents' news segment. You're listening to CJSR-FM 88.5 Edmonton. Next up, we have our opinion segment. Hello, my name is Andrew McQuinney, and I'm the opinion editor here at the Gateway. Today... I'm speaking with another one of my volunteers who wrote a column on Bill 19, the tuition framework recently put in and proposed by the NDP. Hi, everyone. My name is Kyle Monda, and I'm a fifth-year art and design student here at University of Alberta. Yeah, so Kyle is one of our volunteers. Uh, He wrote this really excellent article recently about uh, new tuition controls don't do enough for students. So, uh, Kyle, this first kind of question starting off, kind of what inspired you to uh, write this column for The Gateway? Well... Of course, I, as a student at University of Alberta, I pay tuition, so um, it's a pretty big issue that affects me directly. Um, And just generally, I would say it's the single biggest issue in student politics most years, just because it's something that everybody at the University of Alberta is directly affected by. And while it is only one cost of being a student, for a lot of people, it's one of their biggest costs for being a student. So it's one of the biggest issues that affect the accessibility and affordability of attending university. Absolutely, yeah. So if you want to give me kind of a quick outline, from what I understand, what I remember, your article was basically saying that while having Bill 19 and having predictability in tuition is great and all, and it's good for students to know exactly how much they'll be paying by increases in each year. Um, it doesn't quite go far enough for, I think, what a lot of SUs were advocating for, what a lot of students would have wanted. So what does predictable and affordable tuition look like for you, and why should students be asking for more than what they were given in Bill 19? So first of all, Bill 19 isn't bad. I'll start off by saying that. Mm-hmm. It is a good thing. I just... I don't think it goes far enough. I think it's the bare minimum of what students could have expected. So Bill 19, so there's one more year of a tuition freeze. And then after that, um, tuition is locked to the rate of CPI in Alberta. But the thing is, is that's essentially the status quo for Alberta. So while tuition wasn't in legislation before, it was in regulation So that's decided by the Minister of Advanced Education, and it was already locked to CPI for the years preceding the NDP as well. So it's essentially what Alberta has been operating for for a while. So while the tuition freeze gave us a break from inflation for these past four, it'll be four years of total of tuition freeze, that's still not very much to improve the affordability of education. I think predictability is being able to expect what it will be each year. I I would say that I want to know what share of my education I'm paying for, because right now tuition just goes into the general operating budget at the university, and we know that um, 17% of the operating budget of the university is paid for by tuition, but at the minute that just goes into a general pot that the university spends as it wells. And nobody knows how much it costs to actually educate an undergraduate student in any program. So I think that 
I would want to know exactly how much of my education am I paying for and how much is the provincial government paying for. And that was vaguely promised by the NDP at the beginning of the tuition review process because the tuition review was initially described as a top-to-bottom review of post-secondary education in the province. So it was supposed to look at the funding model, how much, like where, what revenue sources that universities get both from student fees, like tuition, the mandatory non-instructional fees or MNIFs from the Campus Alberta grant, as well as various other targeted grants that the provincial government gives the university. And the idea was essentially to assess whether um, this is the most efficient way of doing it, whether this is the greatest benefit to students in the province. But that's never really happened, it seems. Or at least if the government did do this top to bottom review, they're not telling anybody what they figured out because they just said that after this review, they've essentially decided to maintain the status quo with tuition locked to CPI, which is what it was before. And there hasn't been any announced changes to the funding model for universities. So the, the Campus Alberta grants is staying the same. All the other funding that the university gets from the government is staying the same. And I don't think that that was what was promised at the beginning of the process. Yeah, it was still mind-boggling, especially for a lot of people working in journalism, working student journalism. Minister Schmidt was always like, yeah, it's going to come soon. Don't worry, we'll have that out. And sure, we got something of maybe a result of the tuition review. But yeah, we absolutely didn't get kind of the results of the consultation. We don't know if there's going to be released at all. We're still kind of kind of pushed to see if that's going to come out at all. And I think it'd be, as you've noted, super beneficial for students to know exactly kind of like those numbers and what went into um, this decision in the first place. So yeah. yeah. Moving forward then, so with Bill 19 being something that students, while it's not totally terrible for students, but it is only the bare minimum and something that students maybe are only a little bit happy with because at least they have some predictability. What do you think some students' unions in Alberta, um, particularly the U of A Students' Union, as well as the Council of Alberta University Students, um, hailed this as kind of a victory for them? Like, Why do you think there was that kind of reaction when I think in reality it wasn't exactly what they were shooting for? Well, I think there's a couple different reasons why student leaders were very outwardly pleased with this bill, at least. Um, first of all, students, polit- student politicians are generally only in office for, like, their terms are only one year, unless they run for the same position again or a different position. The next year, they only have one year to achieve any of their goals. So generally, the government isn't announcing changes to tuition every year. So for any student politician to get anything they asked for in a government bill is a big achievement for them. So whether it's exactly what they wanted or not, for their own personal perspective, it's a big achievement to get something that they were asking for in a government bill. I think that we also, at least at University of Alberta, over the past two years at least, we've elected generally more conservative-leaning students, union politicians. Adam Brown was a former member of the Progressive Conservative Party, so it makes sense that he would be really happy with a bill that essentially mirrors what was put into regulation by the Progressive Conservative government before the NDP got into power. As well as there's been, at least at University of Alberta, a push to really loosen our political policies to give executives more freedom to kind of do what they want versus be um, more locked into certain policy goals by students council. When I was on students council two years ago, this was actually like their very stated goal by the executives was when we were editing political policy and passing new policies was to make them as vague as possible so that incoming executives from year to year 
can essentially take them in the direction they want. So rather than putting in the policy that's passed by the Students' Council at large to say we want tuition, uh, let's say, reduced by 2% each year. Instead, it will say something vague like the SU will advocate for affordable education. So that's just a, that's not actually what it says. Um, but as an example, that's essentially what most of our political policies say right now because there's been an active effort to water them down to give executives more flexibility. And I'm not sure that that benefit students in the end because it's really removing an important accountability for executives. Yeah. And with that kind of watering down of policy as well and making some of those goals very vague, you really have a lot of, again, that freedom as the executive to say, oh, well, that can mean anything I wanted to. It could be just like ensuring kind of just predictability, um, which is, I mean, technically you could argue as being affordable as it's something that allows students to kind of at least have an affordable way of um, budgeting their money to afford tuition. Or it could like leave space for maybe a student politician that is more radical and wants to put down exact percentage points on how much they want tuition to be lowered, for example. But I will agree with you. And I think a lot of that sense, we haven't really seen a lot of student executives be on that more radical side of taking actually taking stronger positions of exact points percentage they want down. I mean, and I don't blame them. I'd also be happy to take any kind of like increase. But I also think it's also good to recognize that we also still need to push forward in some other positions as well and make sure that we do have concrete goals we're shooting for other than just like, oh, just a little bit of this here and there. One thing that I think is funny is how, at least in the last election at University of Alberta, there was a candidate who ran for VP External who campaigned specifically on predictable tuition increases as an advocacy point for the government. And almost every, like generally, people made fun of him for that. Like It was pretty harsh because people said, why would anybody vote for predictable tuition increases? But that's exactly what our current SU candidates are celebrating as a success, predictable tuition increases. So... Do without what you will. <laughs> yeah. A little bit of irony there for sure. Uh, yeah. So speaking kind of of maybe taking that stance more towards the SU politics here and moving towards more conservative kind of positions here at the U of A, uh, we've seen the implementation of nonpartisan policy uh, officially as of this year. The SU, while traditionally had been a nonpartisan body, uh, that would just kind of more of a unspoken rule. But now it is officially put into um U of A's uh, legislation. Um, so we've seen that implemented. We've also seen the appearance recently in some of the scandal that came about with uh, Reed Larson's Twitter photo with uh, conservative MP Carrie Diot and a lot of the um, unrest that's stirred among some of the student populace here. Kyle, are you seeing maybe kind of attempts at student governance, maybe just at the U of A, uh, trying to prepare for maybe a government change in Alberta, maybe changing their optics or tactics at all? I think so. I'm not sure it's going to work. In general, Students' unions in Western Canada have always been nonpartisan. There's kind of a divide between Western student unions and Eastern student unions. The ones in Eastern Canada tend to be more radical, more partisan, while the ones in Western Canada tend to be very nonpartisan and more policy oriented. So this really doesn't change anything. As you said, it was already convention for the students' union to be nonpartisan. I don't think that it's going to make a difference because a general talking point for the right wing in North America is that universities are biased towards the left. And I think students unions have kind of been caught in the crossfire of this. I don't think it's something that originated from anything the students union did. I think it's more just a general perception from people who aren't on campus. And I, I'm not sure that anything the students union 
does will be able to change that perception. Yeah, it's tricky when, especially as you're an SU, you have students to look out for, um, regardless, and especially as a nonpartisan organization, regardless of whoever is in power, you got to be advocating for the best of what the students want and what the students need as well. So it's really tough when you maybe are at risk of a new government, in our case in Alberta, as most people know, it's the United Conservative Party, the UCP, coming in and maybe taking a harsher stance on maybe changing some stuff like the uh, the grant, some of the grants that come through from the government to a lot of these post-secondary institutions, and as well as... <laughs> The UCP also has a policy point of possibly uh, making students' union fees optional, uh, so that'd be like an opt-out kind of fee uh, for students, so they wouldn't have to be paying into uh, larger SU fees that help them run the SU and also provide a lot of other services on campus. So yeah, it's tough, and they think they're kind of just in like damage control and trying their best to make sure that they're not doing anything, maybe to like step on the UCP's toes in a way. Um, that's a way that I see it. For you, Kyle, if this is the kind of the changes they're doing and you're not sure if it's going to do a ton, what kind of stance should the University of Alberta Students Union and maybe other SUs in Alberta uh, be taking against a possible government change like this, especially considering some of the stuff I outlined before, like the student union fees being possibly made optional, uh, which would be super crippling to a lot of students' unions, uh, and so on. What do you think? To me, what the students' unions should be doing is making themselves as relevant and important to students as possible before the next election. The reality is most people off campus don't really care what the government does to students' unions, so it's not going to be an election issue for the majority of Albertans. And if legislation is passed, either way to change the the Post-Secondary Learning Act to make students' union membership optional, I'm not sure that it's something that most people would really take outcry to. So What they really need to do is make themselves as relevant to students as possible. So there is a big outburst from students if the government proposes action to actually make students' union membership optional. They need to show students the power that they have through collective bargaining, in a way, with the the government and the institution itself. The services they provide to students, most students don't understand which services they get that are provided by the students' union and which ones they get which are provided by the university. So um, they may think that, oh, it doesn't matter if the SU goes away, when really they're benefiting in all these different ways from the students' union and they just don't realize it. And at the end of the day, students don't have much money. They're cheap. They're going to do anything they can to save money, and they need to see the value that they're getting from the SU fee if they want to be, if we want to make them upset that they're not going to have to pay it anymore. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And some of those essential services, I mean, that the other than advocacy, of course, and a lot of like the students, you know, that they operate, um, a lot of other important services, like, I mean, mental health supports and stuff, like the peer support center. The main ones are the, the peer support center, the landing, the UPASS, InfoLink. Safe walk. Yeah, those kind of are like big services. I think that like even if some students, majority of students maybe on campus don't use them, uh, I think they're very much utilized by quite a few students at risk um, and kind of eliminating those services lets a lot of students fall through the cracks, at least in my opinion. So that's kind of a big risk uh, that students, I think, should be taken into account. And the SU should be like pushing a lot of that value there, that it's not just simply when you don't have to pay $90 in student union fees to save that 90 bucks. You're also spending that $90 not just to support the SU existing as a thing, but also to help all these other people as well on campus who need and require those services. And it may be even yourself as a student one day who requires them. So something to push there. Exactly. There's also all the other faculty associations on campus, which 
have are given their authority by the SU, and if they have um, dedicated fee units, those are administrated by the SU. So a lot of people don't understand that that would also go away if the SU went away. So really, what optional students union membership would do, what it would essentially destroy students' ability to govern themselves and advocate for themselves. Uh, and people might not get that. They might think, oh, I I disagree with this year's SU president, so I don't want to pay the fee anymore. When really there's all these other things that they're giving up that they might not realize they're giving up. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, coming back to the question of the SU uh, needing the SUs and stuff needing to show up relevancy and show that kind of value in what students are paying for in their student union fees. How do you think the current SU administration is doing now and the executive is doing now to show that kind of value? Are there things that they're doing well and things that they could improve on, for example? I'm not really sure they've made any effort this year to show their relevancy beyond every other year. SU, as a overall trend for the past couple decade, I would say, students' union voter turnout has been going down. There's been a few upward ticks, but um, if you compare it to 20 years ago, it's definitely less. I think the other issue with the students' union is that it's kind of, it's actually unique at Alberta, at University of Alberta, how much authority we give away the students union gives away to faculty associations and department associations most other students unions hold on to that power because it's a way to have um, more direct influence over the things that affect students more closely so changes within their faculty changes to their programs etc and a lot of the faculty associations aren't really all that well run as the constant churn of them disbanding and getting reformed shows. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm not really sure that this system benefits keeping the SU relevant and top of mind for students. But overall, I would say that um, the student events this year have been the same that they've been for the past four years at least. There really hasn't been anything new. I'm not sure that they're doing anything radical to make students like them. There were the protests last year around international tuition, but that hasn't really been followed up or the movement carried on in any meaningful way, which I think is a missed opportunity as well. I, I would say no, there hasn't been anything other than the status quo. Yeah. So after that great discussion, um, is there any kind of closing remarks you want to make about Bill 19, about the University of our Students Union, their advocacy, or uh, anything at all? I would say that the fact that the UCP is generally supporting Bill 19 is kind of indicative of how conservative a bill it is. <laughs> I think that shows how it really is the bare minimum kind of centrist approach to tuition. The NDP hasn't shown us the homework they did, if any, on how they got to this bill. I mean, really, I, I would even want to see uh, just the justification for why they think the current funding model for universities is perfect as it is. Um, so, like, we we deserve better than this. Students want to see the data. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Kyle, for coming on speaking to me today about Bill 19 and about uh, student union governance here at the U of A. My name is Andrew McQuinney. I'm the opinion editor here at The Gateway. Uh, thanks for tuning in to The Gateway Presents. We'll see you all in two weeks' time. Thanks.
That was the Gateway Presents' opinion segment. You're listening to CJSR-FM 88.5 Edmonton. Next up, sit back and enjoy our arts and culture section. Hello and welcome to the Arts and Culture segment of The Gateway Presents. I'm Jonah Dunch, the Arts and Culture Editor of The Gateway, and I'm joined in the studio by Victoria Chu, The Gateway's online editor. You may have just heard doing the transition into this segment itself. Victoria, welcome. Hello. It's very trippy to be on the segment and also producing the segment, <laughs> so this will be fun. Indeed. Right on. So we're here today to talk to Victoria about an article that we published, which was a lot of fun. So Victoria did 10 Noodle Places to Eat at in Edmonton Before You Die. And this list has been months in the making, and the votes are finally in. That's from Victoria Chu and her friend Jessica Lee. I thought it would be fun to talk to Victoria about what goes into this kind of article, the interesting, fun, circuitous route into the world of food in Edmonton. Now, why don't we start, Victoria, by uh, talking about how you got into the noodle scene in Edmonton at the start. What inspires you when it comes to the world of noodles? Um, well, first of all, I just have to say that my very first foray into noodles that I remember is actually Ichiban, like instant ramen. Um, and okay. as a preview, we're actually probably going to do an instant ramen review for the Gateway Ooh. later. Yeah, it's a little sneak sneak preview of yes. things to come. For everyone who's at home just refreshing the Gateway website every day. Exactly. Uh, yeah, it'll probably be a while, though, because um, these kinds of articles, even though they, they look like they don't take very long to make, if you think about the amount of time that it would actually take to go to 10 places and, and eat at things and eat more than once and try some different permutations of food. It actually takes quite a while, so it took us over a year to write this. Um, partially because every time we got together to write it, we would just eat noodles and then not write anything. And then we would get together and be like, oh, we gotta eat more noodles, and then we wouldn't write anything. Anyway, so yeah. Um, in, in terms of like what got me into noodles I guess like the best hey that's what you asked the best the best thing about noodles is just like it's so accessible um it's just like a food that has kind of like dumplings or rice porridge or any kind of porridge dish there are certain ubiquitous foods that connect people around the world and it it doesn't really matter what culture or country you're from you probably have had a type of variation of that dish noodles are one of those and because i'm asian i just i eat at a lot of asian places and we live in a cold place and noodle soups are good and comforting even if you just think of like chicken noodle soup um it's just something that's nice when it's cold out and it's cold here so much that i just eat a lot of it and uh yeah it's one of my favorite foods and it's just you know writing an article like this is a good way to just get really into what you like and it's an excuse to just eat a lot of foods that you enjoy so that that's essentially it i don't know awesome so when did you and jessica first get the idea of writing this comprehensive 10 noodle places list um so jessica and is a fellow business student and uh, we would do these case competitions together in our first year uh, which are these things where you're given a problem and then you have a certain amount of time to solve them and you have to present a PowerPoint on your solution. And uh, they're very stressful is the point. Um, So after these uh, case competitions, we would like to go for noodles. And um, 
you know, I think Nomia was one of the first places we went to. It was really great. I don't know. I just have, we, we have like really good memories. We love eating, both of us, <laughs> maybe too much. I don't know. Um, and we like to talk and it's just, I don't know, like we, it opens us up a lot to just eat a lot of noodles and, and stew for a really long time over nice hot food and, you know, be in this insular place where no one is bothering us or like looking over our shoulders and stuff. It's like we never really talk that much at school because she works so much. So we'd come together over meals a lot of the time. And it's just something that's kind of carried us through as we've gone through our degrees and she's going to graduate in April. So uh, are there any noodle places that didn't make the cut at the time of recording yesterday, the whole, well, most of the gateway staff, we all went to this place on white. It's actually on 103rd street and 81st Avenue. If you want to check it out yourself mm-hmm. called chef hung. And it's like the chef hung beef Taiwanese noodle house. It's a franchise that's actually come from Taiwan, I believe. Um, but they just make uh, their noodles in-house, and their broth is really rich, and it's just really, really good. I mean, I went there for their soft opening, and it was delicious. I didn't have to pay for anything, and I was like, man, I would actually just pay for this food. Um, And we all went there yesterday and walked through the bitter colds, and then we were rewarded with really nice, just hot noodles. And I mean, some of our staff didn't think it was, like, the best, I guess, but I think that overall the consensus was that it was pretty good it was pretty good quality yes that was a fun meal last night and definitely if we do a sequel to this article we can make sure to include chef hung so everyone the 11th place on the list that's chef hung (laughs) yeah and then i mean there there are places out there where you know like you you go there and maybe they're a place that you frequent but you don't necessarily want to say like if you had to come to Edmonton and eat noodles like you would go here yeah because there are lots and lots of noodle places in Edmonton and many of them are a bit more hole in the wall or like ma and pop shops you know you're around like Chinatown North or in other parts of the city so well, and like some of yeah. them are, are places where I eat a lot for instance like double greeting wonton right. house yes. is like one of those places oh, yeah. i eat there all the time we get so much takeout but i think their thing is like i don't know a lot of if you've never been to a traditional not even traditional just like a very yeah. popular chinese style uh restaurant the way it works is there's like a hundred menu items there's just every variation of congee that you could want and every variation of like fried noodles that you could want um but they only do like those items but every every possible way so you know i get kanji there all the time and like i always have the whatever i can't remember what it is anymore but like it's the it has the century egg in it and stuff anyway that's like a place where i don't get noodle soup so it doesn't make the list let's say i've only ever eaten wonder bread um with uh, let's say with dijon mustard right so i i have a touch of of white trash class um how would you convince me to eat noodle soup i would say hey have you ever lived have you ever lived a single day in edmonton when the weather is not plus 10 yeah and I'd say, oh boy, I sure have. And I would say, well, while you were sitting there eating your probably not toasted Wonder Bread with Dijon mustard, um, I was enjoying this meal that you should really try. Just a steaming, hot, nice, comforting, delicious, savory bowl of broth, really rich, 
um, with tons of different notes beneath it. Like there's tons of spices in a lot of these broths. Like just as an aside, broth in general, especially bone broth, not stock, but like bone broth that's been simmering for hours and hours and hours um, is... I would say it's like a pretty storied ancient food. Like people have been eating it for a really long time and incorporating it into tons and tons of different dishes all around the world. So anyway, broth with all those kinds of like apple cider vinegar and like basil and like, I don't know, star anise and stuff. It, it just, it's great. Anyway, so that mixed with, I don't know, I think the best noodles are hand-pulled noodles. They're my favorite. It's when someone just like makes it instead of just taking it out of a freaking, I don't know, like just a package and then dumping it in some water and being like, ha-ha, here's your noodles. Mm-hmm. Anyway, stuff made by hand is always better than packaged stuff, but I think everyone agrees with that. Um, yeah, so then, and the best thing about noodle soups, too, is that you can just customize them. So if you want, like, I don't know, in the case of pho, which is probably the, the type of noodle soup I eat the most, if you just want a little bit of spice, you can add, like, I don't know, sriracha sauce to it which is that red rooster sauce, if you don't know what that is. It's always in a lot of Asian restaurants. Um, you can add basil. It is not mint. Everyone thinks it's mint. It's not people mint. People think it's mint? It's basil. Yeah, people think people it's think mint. it's mint? Yeah, it's not mint. It's basil. You can add bean sprouts. You can mm. add lime juice. And there's that peanut sauce as well. Yeah. yeah. I can't eat that because I'm allergic to peanuts. Ah. Uh, but, yes, you can add a lot of things. You can add hoisin sauce. Pretty much anything. It's customizable. I think that's really good. I mean, you can say that about a lot of things like sandwiches are customizable. But sandwiches, you see, when you're sick or when you're really cold, do not warm you up and make mm. you feel better. I think that's the real draw of noodle soup. Chad student who's only eaten Wonder Bread and Dijon mustard. <laughs> so I am Chad student still. You know, you've convinced me to try out noodle soup. Um, some tried some Asian noodle soup, even though all I've eaten in my life has been Wonder Bread with Dijon mustard because I'm classy. So where would you recommend that I eat to start out on my noodle soup journey? Well, it depends if you want ramen or if you want pho. Or if you don't care. What, what, or... what are those? There, there's so many kinds of noodles. Yeah, that's true. What? Okay, so my personal favorite, which our managing editor actually asked me this question mm. yesterday. My favorite is actually udon soup. Um, mm. Like udon noodles, really yeah. thick. They're Japanese. Uh, they're like white in color, I guess. Um, but nowhere in Edmonton, I find, really makes a lot of udon soup. So usually I'll just make that at home. If I'm going out, it's usually either ramen or pho. And it's usually, I I don't really deviate from that if I'm in Edmonton. Um, So I would say that pho is more of a comfort food for me, whereas ramen is like, wow, you could could get some expensive ramen um, at some of these places if you really want to shell out the cash money flow. Um, But I would say pho is a good intro thing. It's kind of like chicken soup in that it's, you know, I don't know, a lot, all my Viet friends eat it when they're sick, um, but it's also just good when you're not sick. It's a very chill food. Like, there's no fancy weird stuff in it if you don't want there to be. Usually it's just, like, broth, noodles. You don't have to add any of that basil and bean sprout stuff if you don't want to. Onions, um, and then usually some sort of meat. You don't have to have meat in it. You can have vegetables, but usually it comes with meat. It's usually like flank or shank or something. And if you want to get fancy after that, you can add like beef tendon or tripe. But I think that's probably the best. And I would say for that, you should go to Lapa Goat or Pagalak because um, it's it's like a family thing. They are associated with both. Pagalak is downtown 
and La Pagode is beside West Edmonton Mall in a strip mall, and I've been going there since I was six years old, possibly before that, but I don't remember because I only remember ever eating there. Wow. So, yeah, they it's good. So you mentioned that in pho, especially, you can choose different kinds of meats to have in it. Now, I'm Chad's student, right? I've only ever had Wonder Bread with Dijon mustard, but now I have tried noodle soup, right? So I'm getting open to it. I've sipped my broth, I've eaten my noodles, but there's this other kind of interesting meat in my soup. I've, I've never seen it before. It looks like a waffle, but not? What? You mean tripe? I mean tripe. Yeah, tripe is cow stomach lining. Boy! <laughs> um, I what? Actually, I, I love tripe, actually, mm-hmm. to be honest with you. Like, I don't really, I don't need meat yeah. anymore. But um, when I was younger, I would usually get a bowl of pho. And then because I would go to Lapago literally every week, like every week, they wouldn't even ask us what we wanted because they just knew because I would get the same thing every single week and I would never get sick of it. I would get that and then I would order just a bowl of tripe with nothing, like just some pho broth and some tripe. (laughs) And I would eat that straight. And I almost choked on it a few times because like, I don't know, tripe is like really, it can be really long and like stringy and stuff depending on how they cut it. Um, but yeah, tripe's good. I mean, it depends how it's cooked, and, and some people don't like, like, I like plain food, quote-unquote plain food, um, so I'm fine with just eating straight tripe, but I don't know. I feel like you shouldn't be scared. A lot of people are really put off by things like, I was like, oh, it's like cow stomach lining, but I mean, like, people eat hearts and liver, which I think are grosser than cow stomach lining, um, but yeah, there's that. Chicken feet's another one. People often mm. get really turned off by the idea of eating chicken feet, but... I mean, have you heard of what they put into the wings of chickens, like just chicken wings, like mm. so many hormones in those, but you still eat them? I don't know. I feel like you can't really say that if you're going to write off chicken feet, which, again, that was probably my favorite thing to eat at dim sum every time was like just like a whole bowl of chicken feet because, you know, you, you like suck the meat off the bone and you spit out the joints. I don't know. It's just great. Yeah. If there's any takeaway from today, it's that Victoria is metal. Like, wow. I don't know. A lot of people, all the Asian people I know, like, eat that and, and way weirder stuff. So. <laughs> sure, yeah, yeah. Is there any particular item on this list that really sticks out to you? Either the whole restaurant, its aesthetic, or any particular dish when you think back on this past year of eating noodles with Jessica? I would say that first, okay, so Tokawa Ramen is a standout because... They have very, very good broth. Um, I would say that it's it's like some of the best in the city. That said, they also close when they run out every day, and they don't tell you really like when they when they run out. So sometimes Jessica and I would be like, "Oh God, I just want to go get some ramen. Let's go to Tokawa." Go up, we roll up to the door, and it's like, "Sorry, no more soup today." And we're like, "Are you kidding me?" So anyway, there's that. Also, Tokawa is very expensive. That's another thing, um, kind of like a price barrier type deal. But I mean, if price were no object, yeah, Tokawa is really, really, really good, especially their black garlic ramen. Um, and their pot stickers are little rectangles instead of mm. like other shapes, which is kind of oh, interesting. Um, Nomi is good just because I have eaten there so many times, like probably the most I've eaten at Nomia than other than anywhere else. And it's just really reliable and good. And their sushi is really good. Like their sushi is super fresh. Um, the nori or the fish, like it's, it's really high quality. 
Um, and then the last thing I would probably highlight, aside from Lepagode, which I've talked so much about already, is Chopsticks Diner at the very bottom, because that's mostly a meme on one of our friends. Uh, Jessica and I have this mutual friend. Um, and, you know, it's kind of just like an inside joke between us all uh, about Chopsticks Diner. But we actually have eaten there, and Jessica really does, her family really does take out from there all the time. It's a place on the west side. And uh, it's just like a family-run Chinese place, uh, but I would I would say yeah, sure check check out Chopsticks Diner. Why not? We've done like a Noodle Nation on them. It's yeah. it's just great, and and it's like a it's like you know what when, when people when we write these things we like had like to have fun. So that's one of the that's one of the standouts for that reason. <laughs> okay, I'll take note of that. Yeah, how would you weigh like? more like fancy places against more of like the traditional home style um you know chinese canadian places uh i would say that if you are going to a fancier place a more upscale place a newer place a quote-unquote more like western place you probably are paying more um because they are probably going to have higher overhead because they're not going to be in a place like chinatown where the rent is hella cheap um, that said, you also probably won't have to worry too much about the place getting shut down in the next couple months for health code violations. Um, because I don't know, a lot of places that, you know, serve really good food, sometimes their health codes aren't necessarily all, all there. They're not firing at all four cylinders on that front. But I mean, that said, also you worry about things like, uh, it's less of a hidden gem. You know, these places usually have better marketing. Um, they cater to a different audience. So you know, if you go into a place and it's full of old Asian people, probably objectively quality wise, it's really good because they if it was better and they could make it better themselves, they would. But if it's good enough for them to go out of their way and eat it, it says something. Um, and then I guess there's like a nice sense of authenticity and being really like really getting to know the staff of a smaller place that's, you know, been a fixture of a community for a really long time. Like I mentioned at Lapago, like I never really have to say what I want to order because they just know and they know what I like. It's it's like very nice to have that connection as opposed to a busier place that is more popular and sees more people come through all the time. But yeah, and also places that are smaller are cheaper and I don't I don't know. Like Kodohue, for instance, I would say like Oh, but it's easier to get a table. Not necessarily. Like, Kodahue is really popular. And we mentioned it in our article. If you're uh, lucky enough to get a table there, then you're really happy because they're always so busy. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't know. All, their, all, the, all these different places have different merits to them. Alrighty. Well, I believe that's all the time we have for today. Victoria, thank you so much for talking about your article and your life in the world of noodle soup. I am always willing to talk about food all the time. (laughs) Excellent. This has been the arts and culture segment of The Gateway Presents. I'm Jonah Dunch. This is Victoria Chu. And we've been discussing 10 noodle places to eat at in Edmonton before you die on The Gateway website. I hope you can check it out and maybe try some of these noodle places yourself. Closing out. Bye. That was our arts and culture section, and that's all our time for this episode of The Gateway Presents. We'll see you again in another two weeks. I'm Victoria Chu, online editor of The Gateway at the University of Alberta, and you're listening to The Gateway Presents on CJSR-FM 88.5 Edmonton. Our music is by Disparition and can be found at disparition.info or disparition.bandcamp.com. Thank you so much for listening.